0: Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com Hello
1: and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's programme, Paul Van Eden of Cranberry Capital gives us some insight into his investing methods and his thoughts on the direction of the commodities markets. We talk to the bosses of two silver exploration and development companies with massive deposits, Abraham Drost of Sabina Silver and Mark Henderson of Aquiline and Dr above talks gold calls and inflation now the disclaimer nothing you hear in this program constitutes advice to buy or sell anything do your own research make up your own minds companies do pay a fee to appear on the show for which we thank them graciously because without that fee we wouldn't have a show And if there are any guests or companies you'd like me to talk to, do please send your suggestions to Dominic at Mindsight.com. That's Dominic at Mindsight.com. And a reminder that you can now subscribe to the program via iTunes. Go to commoditywatch.podbean.com and hit the subscribe with iTunes button on the left of the screen. Right, first up, it's Paul Van Eden.
0: You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio at mindsight.com.
1: Paul Van Eden is the president of the investment holding company Cranberry Capital. Paul, welcome to the show. Am I right in saying Cranberry Capital, it's not available to other people, it's purely an investment vehicle for your own money?
2: Yes, thanks, Dominic. That is, that is entirely correct. Cranberry Capital is a private holding company and at this time is not open to the public whatsoever.
1: And, um, and then you publish a newsletter as well in which you detail the stock trading activity of Cranberry Capital. Is that right?
2: I do. I used to be a stock broker for a long time. And when I created Cranberry Capital and started just managing my own funds, there was quite a substantial demand from people that I knew who wanted me to manage money or somehow gain insight into what it is that I was doing and I didn't want to manage any money so I decided to publish a newsletter in which I tell subscribers which stocks I buy I give them the reasons why I like the companies but I also tell them when I sell the companies and why I sold them and so people can get people can get if you want a running commentary on what it is that I'm doing with my own capital through subscribing to this financial newsletter
1: and why did you not want to invest anyone else's money
2: I primarily specialize in mineral exploration stocks and mineral exploration is a very very risky business if I do it with my own money I am fully cognizant of the risk that I'm taking but other people when the market is good sometimes forget how risky it is, and they invest too much money in these sectors. I don't want responsibility for other people's money when they, especially not in a sector that is as risky as as mineral exploration. And so I'd much rather just tell them what I'm doing. And if they, you know, let them do what they want to do. If they want to take the chances, that's fine. You know, all the power to them. Uh, But I do not want it on my conscience when some of these things go bad. And they do go bad. I mean, you know, anybody that's been in mineral exploration for more than a fleeting moment will know that not everything works out.
1: You've lived through bear markets as well as uh, this, this bull market at the moment.
2: I cut my teeth in a bear market. For the first, oh, I would say six years of my career, I knew nothing but a bear market. And I think as a result of that, risk management has kind of been ingrained in my investment philosophy. Um, but that is not to say that you know I don't understand the bull markets. I understand them very well. Um, it's just that if you haven't been through a bad bear market, sometimes you forget how bad bear markets can be and how quickly the onset of a bear market can erode capital.
1: And are you a believer in uh, if a stock doubles taking out half your investment? Is that a, a tactic you employ?
2: No, it's not. Um, I don't look at these stocks as trading cards. I look at them as fractional ownership in businesses. And if I find a business that I like and I want to be an owner of this business, I will often hold the stock for much, much longer and try and, try and participate in the benefit that management brings to the company for much more than a double. There are many stocks that I own that have gone up three, four, five hundred, or a thousand percent, and in some cases I may still be an owner, um, I am much more of the belief that you buy a company for a particular reason, and you then have to manage your expectations along those lines. So if I buy a company for a particular reason, and it appears as if that is not going to materialize, I sell, regardless of the loss, if there is any. Similarly, if I buy a company for a particular reason and the market pays me too much for it before it, becomes, before it comes to fruition, I'll sell all of it, not just half. I get out and I look for something else to do. If a company continues to do what I expect it to do, I'll be a long-term shareholder. And long-term can be forever. So um, how do you value a company? That's a difficult question because in the sector that I specialize, which is mineral exploration, it's very, very difficult to put a solid value on a company. Um, In this sector, in mineral exploration, the company executives will will often try and tell you that the cash that they have in the bank is an asset. It's not because most of them will spend the cash as fast as is humanly possible, and so it's a rapidly depleting asset that cannot be counted on. The next thing they'll tell you is that the mineral properties they own are assets. And that, too, is incorrect because the mineral properties are more appropriately viewed as liabilities. These are the things that they're going to spend their cash on, and more often than not, they're not going to find what they're looking for. The only real asset that an exploration company has is the intellectual capital of its management team, and that's an intangible asset, very, very hard to value. So when I look at this sector and I look at the companies, I try and get a sense of what the type of deposit is that the company is looking for and what is the the stage of development. We try to form an opinion about the potential value of these deposits and then juxtapose that to the market capitalization of the company, assuming that if they're successful at finding what they're looking for, we need to make five or ten times our money. If not, we want limited downside. As an example, if I buy a company with a $10 million market capitalization that has, say, 3 or $4 million in the bank, then I think my downside is probably 50 to 60% in the short term. If they're looking for a major Carlin type system in Nevada, where the upside could be several hundred million dollars if they were successful, I have enough upside. Now, we need to get to risk management because that's what it's all about. The most important thing in this is the business model now. The type of companies I invest in are junior exploration capital, uh, junior exploration companies that use their intellectual capital to generate the exploration ideas and then get joint venture partners in to fund those ideas. Go back to the hypothetical example. Here's a company with say three, four million dollars in the bank. And they're generating exploration ideas in the Carlin District in Nevada. But instead of spending any of their own money, they get joint venture partners to fund all of the cost of exploration and carry them for, say, 20 or 30 percent of the project to feasibility. If they can do that with five or ten properties, we've got five to ten chances to make a discovery. At very, very little financial risk to ourselves as shareholders, essentially all we have to carry is the overhead cost, the administrative cost. So that's the basic business model and the basic investment philosophy in mineral exploration.
1: I see. And how many companies do you own at any given moment?
2: Anywhere from about fifteen to thirty. I try not to have too many less than too many fewer than fifteen because you do need some diversification, spread the risk around. And I try not to have too many more than 20, because it becomes very onerous to keep track of all these companies and stay on top of them. So by the time I get close to 30, I'm usually culling aggressively. And by, by the time I get to 15, I'm usually looking for acquisitions. And the fluctuation between 15 and 30 is often a function of the market when the markets run up and become expensive I'm usually liquidating and when the markets contract and the stock prices become less expensive I'm usually on the buy side so how do you gauge when the markets expensive um, if we're if we're able to buy junior exploration companies that follow this business model have a competent management team and have a market capitalization in the 5 to $20 million range, I think we're probably at the lower end of the market, depending on where the commodity prices are. And when these companies get up to the 75 to $100 million market capitalizations, which they do, then we're usually at the expensive end of the spectrum. And I'll be selling them. Uh, You know, you could make a lot of money just trading these things in and out, even though that's not the core business philosophy. It does happen in reality that over a period of years, these things do cycle.
1: So you like to get in very early stage?
2: Very early stage, either in the formation stage or soon after the formation stage uh, or in the distress stage. But I'm always trying to get in early at a low market capitalization. The only time that I'll get in late is if the, the project that they happen to stumble on is so prospective and so compelling um, that I'll take a chance, but there has to be some very, very strong geological reasons to do that. And even then, I'd want to do it at a, at a relatively early stage, not at the development stage or late exploration stage
1: one of the cliches that you hear bandied around at the moment is that uh, we're in a commodity super cycle and all you need to do is go long commodities and you'll make money. Um, do you look at the macro trends, if you like, or do you, are you purely focused on the the business model of that particular company? I mean, for example, are you bullish on base metals or are you bullish on gold? or
2: i I. I- spend a lot of time looking at the macro side of things, and I believe that there is a case that we can make that gold is going to continue to perform well relative to fiat currencies, in other words, relative to the paper that governments issue. Um, I am not in the same camp that believe that we are in a a super cycle for base metals. I believe that base metals have seen probably the best of what they're going to see, and that the systemic risk of being invested in base metals right now is far too high for me to be at all attracted to the sector. I sold all my base metal stocks, and in fact, I am now short base metal stocks.
1: My goodness me!
2: You have to be contrarian. Remember, markets go up and down based on psychology. Investing is at once the simplest business in the world and the most difficult. It's very simple. All you have to do is buy low and sell high. It is extremely difficult because stocks are low and prices are low precisely when everybody is selling them and they have a bad reputation and they're high precisely when everybody is buying them and everybody believes that they're going higher. So in order to buy low and sell high, you have to do the opposite of what the market is doing the opposite of conventional wisdom, and the opposite of what most of the people in the world believe to be the truth.
1: So when you say you're short base metal stocks, I presume you purely trade stocks, you don't trade uh, futures of of the actual metals themselves.
2: I dabble in the futures from time to time, but most of my, my capital is allocated to stocks themselves. So yes, that's an accurate statement, although I am in the futures market.
1: And do you short, when you you like to get it, you like to buy companies early, do you tend to short companies who have grown? No. You, know, you don't short companies early, early <clears throat> in their development?
2: No, I don't short companies just for the hell of it. Um, the reason I'm short base metals right now is because I believe that there is risk that a Rapid and substantial decline in base metal prices can drag the price of gold down temporarily. And because the bulk of my portfolio is exposed to gold in some way or another, I'm trying to hedge any downside risk, any downside contagion in the gold market from a decline in the base metal metal prices. That's the only reason I'm short right now. Under normal circumstances, I would not be short at all. I prefer just to play the long side. So, you know, being short base metals right now is a little bit like paying an insurance premium. I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't pay out, but it might pay out, and I might need it. Therefore, I'm prepared to pay the cost. Do you own a lot of energy companies? A few, but not a lot. I'm looking at a couple of, oh dear, of oil and gas companies right now. I do own one or two geothermal companies um... and but I do not own any uranium stocks, I'm completely out of the uranium market
1: You think that's uh, got beyond itself, do you?
2: Way beyond itself. It's gotten so silly um, that if you listen to all these things being bantered about by the uranium bulls uh, it's sometimes difficult to keep a straight face
1: so I detect a certain amount of bullishness about gold, less so obviously about base metals. How about silver, the metal that straddles the two?
2: It does exactly that. It straddles the two. It makes it very difficult. Uh, silver's core characteristics are more like an industrial metal than a monetary asset. And so I think for most part, silver is going to follow the base metals complexes, But silver does have a monetary component to it. And if enough of the silver bulls just actually opened their wallets and bought silver as opposed to talking about how high the price could go, then I think the price of silver would go up. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point the price of silver dramatically outperformed the price of gold, but that would be in the form of a spike. And whenever you see a spike in the price of anything, including silver, it's usually a very, very good time to be selling and a very bad time to be patting yourself on the back and you know, telling yourself how smart you were to get into it in the first place.
1: And how about uh, oil and gas? Are you, do you feel bullish about those two sectors?
2: I believe oil and gas are separate markets. I know that they're both energy markets, but gas is usually a more localized market. In Europe, it may, may straddle more borders, but in North America, gas is very much a North American market. And so the demand and the price of gas are both influenced by local economic activity and events, local weather patterns, and local seasonality. Oil, on the other hand, is different. Oil is a transportation fuel and far more international than gas. So I wouldn't lump the two together. Personally, I don't know enough about the gas market to put any money in it. When it comes to oil, I have two thoughts. One, I agree with Matt Simmons in that we are most likely past peak oil. But that doesn't mean that we have a catastrophic event on the horizon. It merely means that over time oil is going to become more scarce and more expensive. And as oil substitutes start to get more market share, it will offset the demand on oil itself. That is not catastrophic, but it is important. What is far more important and urgent in the oil market is that whether or not we are beyond the peak oil, I believe it to be indisputable that we have run out of the easily accessible light and sweet crude. And most of the crude that we have available for expansion is heavy and or sour crude. And the problem there is that the refineries that we have in the world were all built about 25 or 30 years ago, and they were specifically designed to deal with light, sweet crude. And when you start putting a heavier load of heavy, sour crude through these refineries, you end up with inefficiency, and you also end up with a very large, heavy fraction, a bitumen-type fraction. It also gives you a reduced light fraction. That's where you get your diesels and your jet fuels from. You'll notice that diesel fuel now costs more than gasoline and the only reason why diesel costs more than gasoline is because the refineries are having trouble coping with more heavy sour crude. Therein lies the potential. What I'm what I have invested in and what I am looking at investing additional funds in are new high-tech advanced refineries that are going to get built because the the largest capture in value right now that we can get as entrepreneurs or investors is actually in the refining margin itself, not just the price of crude
1: you presumably Paul have seen the uh the chart that shows the anatomy of a junior miner yes and uh you have the initial spike and then you have the spike back down uh, as reality sets in and then as the company moves into development there's a kind of gradual decline and then finally as it goes into production you get the next move up yes now from what you've described it sounds like you're interested in in playing that first spike the uh the next spike the late stage development is is something that doesn't interest you as as much is that correct a correct assessment of your tactics
2: that is absolutely correct. Um, I've been in the exploration business for over 10 years, and I'm not a geologist myself by training, although I have assimilated a little bit of geology. What I specialize in is finding exploration teams and management teams in small, small, small mineral exploration companies that I believe have the potential to make a discovery. And I like to finance these companies and I'll I'll invest in them for years and, and and work with them for many years in the anticipation that one day we'll make that discovery. Because if you look at that chart which shows the anatomy of an of a mineral exploration and development company, that increase in value that you can get from prior to discovery I mean and I'm talking before there is even a hint of discovery. Into the discovery itself can be a 500 or 1000 or 2000 or 10,000% return on the price prior to the discovery. And if I can make a thousand percent over five years, even if I only make it in the last six months of the five years, it's a pretty nice overall return on investment. And that is exactly the space that I'm in that pre discovery investment stage in the hope of making that that first major game
1: um, what is your portfolio performance over the last four or five years if you don't mind me asking you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to
2: well i don't mind answering the question at all but it's a little bit of a difficult question because cranberry capital is a private holding company the the actual performance of cranberry capital is not published um, what is published on my website, and you're free to take a look at it, is the share performance of the stocks that I've mentioned in the newsletter. Now, the problem with the share performance in the newsletter is that I don't necessarily know when people buy or sell the stocks that I talk about. So, it's difficult to give you a compound annual rate of return. You know, I could, I, I suppose I could do it, but it would depend on many, many assumptions. So instead what I do is I just give you an average return and, and the average return is very simply calculated purchase price to sell to sales price as a function of the purchase price averaged across all the stocks that I've either bought and sold or just bought and not yet sold. Um, if you look at that average of the closed positions, so in other words things that have been bought and sold, the average gain is 145 percent. And on the open positions, the average gain is 134 percent. Now, that is not annualized. So, for example, if we made 30 percent in six months, it's an annualized 60 Mm percent. And these gains that we're reporting are not annualized. So, in other words, they probably understated somewhat. The other thing is, because it's an average, you know, there are some 25 percent losses or 50 percent losses in there. And there are some 1,000% gains in there. And so they all average out to, you know, as, as the numbers reflect as of today, 145% average gain for the closed positions. But that doesn't mean to say that you would have 145% compound annual return. Um, just as a, as a, as a, as a guess, uh, I would say that I've probably enjoyed somewhere in the order of 25 to 35% compound annual returns over the past 10 years.
1: Now, like all good South Africans, you uh, have, I understand, a healthy appreciation uh, and admiration of gold. Um, where do you think this metal is going in
2: the next few years and why? I think the metal price is going higher. And the why is actually a very easy answer. But first, I need to digress, just to put the answer in in context. Gold is not a commodity. Gold is money. And as long as people think of gold in terms of commodity parameters, they're going to be confused and they're going to make bad decisions. To demonstrate that gold is not a commodity is very, very easy. The largest industrial use of gold is jewelry. Total jewelry demand is approximately 1, 1.3% of the average gold trading. So, I mean, think about this, Dominique. Total annual jewelry demand is only 1.3% of total annual gold volume. And I'm not talking about, this is not derivatives and options and futures. This is physical gold trading.
1: So when people talk about the Indian wedding season, you can just dismiss that
2: uh, entirely. It is it is absolutely irrelevant to the price of gold. Another way to look at it, commodity analysts who look at the gold market love to tell you that gold is in deficit. In other words, fabrication demand exceeds mine supply. If you look by how much fabrication demand exceeds mine supply, that deficit is equal to approximately 0.3% of the annual average trading volume of gold. So how do you believe a deficit as small as 0.3% of gold trading can have any influence on the price of gold? I mean, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And I'm saying this only to reinforce the fact that gold is not a commodity and cannot be understood in terms of commodity-type analysis. But if you look at gold as money, and take in mind, or keep in mind, gold has been money for thousands of years. If gold is money, then we should be able to understand its, its price relative to monetary parameters. So as an example... If we go back to 1933 in the United States, the price of gold was defined by the fact that a $20 US coin was made of gold and contained 0.9675 ounces of gold, which implied a gold-to-dollar the to dollar exchange rate of 20.67, $20.67 for an ounce of gold. By definition, by the fact that that was the gold content of a $20 coin, Now ignore what the market did for a second after that you know forget about Roosevelt confiscating the gold and the gold price being set at 35 for you know until 1971 If we start with that 1 year's gold price and if gold is money then the price of gold should decrease every year in proportion to the inflation rate of gold because the inflation rate of a monetary asset devalues all units of that currency that are in existence. The inflation rate of gold is simply the mine production as a function of all the gold that's, that's ever been mined, which is our above-ground store of gold, or above-ground sources of gold. So if we decrease the price of gold in proportion to its inflation rate, and we increase the price of gold in US dollars in proportion to the dollar's inflation rate, as defined by the increase in M3 from 1948 onwards and by the increase in the CPI prior to 1948, then we can calculate the theoretical price for gold. Now if we step forward into the future, and we compare this theoretical price of gold from 1971 to 1996, the standard deviation between those two values is approximately 7.5%. I find it quite remarkable that you can get a 7.5% standard deviation between the the actual real market price of gold and this theoretical construct, which is based on one data point. Now, I mentioned to 1996 because after 1996, there were exchange rate changes that occurred, uh, particularly with respect to the dollar, that distorted this calculation. But if you adjust for constant 1990 dollars, then that correlation between uh, the theoretical price of gold and the actual price of gold is once again intact, right up until today. Now, that to me demonstrates that the the idea that gold is money one has merit, apart from the philosophical arguments for it, but two that there is a predictive ability in analyzing the price of gold from a monetary perspective. If we now look back to that formula, you can see that there are basically three inputs to the price of gold in any currency. One is the inflation rate of gold itself. Two is the inflation rate of the currency that you're measuring it in. And three are changes in the exchange rate of the currency that you're measuring it in. Because gold is an international monetary asset, if the U.S. dollar, as an example, gains on foreign exchange markets, then the price of gold as measured with U.S. dollars would decline. The price of gold in other currencies may remain constant, but if the dollar is appreciating, the price of gold in dollars falls. It's logical. The opposite is also true. If the dollar falls, the price of gold goes up in dollars. And that explains... What happened in the spike of 1979? There was a dollar crisis. Hence, the price of gold and dollars spiked. It explained what happened from 1996 to 1999. There was a dollar bull market. The price of the dollars went up in foreign exchange markets, and the price of gold fell in U.S. dollars, even though the price of gold in, say, South African rands went up in the same period of years. And the price of gold in Japanese yen, as an example, remained relatively flat. And from 2001 to 2005, or actually up until today, the increase in the price of gold has predominantly been due to the devaluation of the U.S. dollar and foreign exchange markets. And it really is that simple. So looking forward, the reason I'm bullish on the price of gold is because gold inflation is running at approximately 1.5% per year monetary inflation in the United States is over 11% as measured by M3 in Europe is over 12% and in the UK is over 12% so in the major economies of the world monetary inflation is growing very very rapidly and that will cause the price of gold in these currencies to appreciate at almost double digits
1: what a great answer now, do you own physical yourself?
2: No. Most of my exposure to gold comes from the stocks that I own, which are, again, mostly mineral exploration stocks, with the exception of one. Um, because I'm bullish on the price of gold, and because I recognize that even though I've been successful in the past with mineral exploration, it doesn't guarantee I will be successful in the future, I wanted to have a position in my portfolio that gave me very good leverage to the price of gold. And so I did buy one of these development stocks that you mentioned. It's a company called Wild Rose. By the way, can we talk about stocks on your program? You certainly can. It's a company called Wild Rose Resources, and they own a gold project in British Columbia called Spanish Mountain in conjunction with a partner company called Sky Gold Ventures. Spanish Mountain, according to our internal calculations, and this is not a compliant resource, it is my own resource uh, estimate, is approximately 2 million ounces and growing. It's low-grade, average of just over 1.2 grams per tonne, but I believe that the deposit has upside potential from an exploration uh, point of view. I also believe that there's a reasonable probability that the metallurgy will be good, and the project is located close to infrastructure, both electricity, water, you know, power and water, and road access. And so if this project is going to grow in size, and if the price of gold is going to do what I think it's going to do, then the economics of this project are going to improve and hence give me leverage on the price of gold. So approximately 10% of my investment portfolio right now is exposed to the Spanish Mountain Project and that is my that is my main gold leverage play if you will
1: now you're obviously an extremely sophisticated investor and uh, you're a very intelligent man let's say I'm a middle-aged gent uh, who's run a successful business or he's worked for a company and he's earned good money in his life and he owns most of his house and he lives in the suburbs maybe has a second home and and you know, has a healthy pile of cash, but he's not a sophisticated mining investor. What would you advise him to do with his cash?
2: The thing about investing is that if you're going to be a part-time or casual investor, you absolutely, and I, and I, and I mean this with all sincerity from the bottom of my heart, you have to look at investing as a means to preserve capital, not a way to acc- to make money and if you look at investing as a means to preserve capital you can do that very very adequately by investing in physical gold or a physical gold alternative such as ETFs uh, such as gold money which allows you to buy gold grams um, or even in the futures market as long as you don't overdo it on the leverage in the futures market you can get almost the same kind of exposure as physical gold just by using no margin whatsoever. And that will preserve your capital because as the buying power of fiat currencies are eroded by the inflation of these currencies, the price of gold will compensate in any of the currencies that you may choose. You will preserve the buying power of your capital, but you will not make any money. If you want to make some money, you have to find leverage. cannot make money without leverage. Again, if you're buying ETFs, maybe you can buy them on margin. If you're in the futures market, you can use margin, but don't overdo it. Maybe use 50% margin. If you're buying uh, gold grams, I don't believe there's any way to leverage. Um, And you can buy gold stocks. But gold stocks are very, very problematic. You may have noticed in the last six months or so that the mid-tier to large-cap gold mining companies have Dramatically underperformed the price of gold. That underperformance has many causes. I'll give you a couple. One is as the price of gold goes up, these mining companies lower their cutoff grade, meaning they're they're mining lower grade ores, and that pushes up their cost of production and erodes the margin that you would expect if they didn't lower their cutoff grades. That's one reason. The second reason is because the inflation rate of these fiat currencies leads to cost increases across the board. The price of fuel goes up, the price of steel goes up, the price of labor goes up. And these cost increases erode margin. So when you go through a period of a rapidly increasing gold price, then you get margin expansion because the costs haven't moved up as much. But when the gold price flattens out, the cost increases continue and you get margin contraction again. And that's what we're seeing in the past six months. You also get the issuance of paper. These companies continue to issue stock, and so their per-share performance is eroded by the issuance of their stock. It's the same inflation argument, only in this case, with respect to to shares. So for for a retail investor, for your middle-aged man who wants to preserve his capital, unless you know quite a lot about the mining business, then investing in mid- to large-cap mining stocks just because you think that they're going to give you the leverage may not always be the smartest thing to do.
1: hmm Um, Paul, this has been an excellent interview. I've got to dash, unfortunately, which is a shame, because I've got a 100 other questions that I'd love to ask you. Please do come on the show again. Let me just ask you one final question. Um, I mean, you describe... We all know how much uh, expansion of the money supply is going on, what the real uh, inflation uh, numbers are. Do you think some sort of monetary crisis is, is... a real possibility in the not-too-distant future?
2: Yes, I do. But now I need to qualify that because whenever somebody uses the word crisis then everybody says, "Ah, you know, don't listen to him, he's a fearmonger." I'm not a fear-monger. I do believe that there is a monetary crisis looming. I don't know how imminent it is. But I'd like to leave you with an analogy, just so that you can see that a crisis isn't always as bad as we think It could be. In 1979, the United States government, the federal government, was unable to issue U.S. Treasury debt denominated in U.S. dollars. The world in 1979 had so little faith in the U.S. dollar that the federal government of the United States could not borrow money in U.S. dollars and they were forced to issue bonds denominated in German Mark and Swiss franc. They were called Carter bonds. Do you believe it qualifies as a crisis? If I were to tell you that the United States cannot borrow money in its own currency? I think the answer to that would be yes, it, it is a crisis. It most definitely is. Now, you were around in the 1980s. How big of an impact did that have on your life? Very little. Precisely. Not every crisis is of the magnitude that everybody has to throw up their arms and go dig a hole and lie down and shiver. A crisis is there because the expansion of fiat money is too rapid and it will lead to price increases and most importantly, it leads to to the destruction of the living standard of the medium and lower income levels of the population. It is the direct cause of the increase in the wealth gap. And it is this erosion of living standard that is the crisis. But it happens so gradually that nobody notices it. So yes, there is a crisis. It is a very, very serious crisis. But it is not the kind of thing that is going to cause a a, a radical and and imminent implosion of life as we know it. You've been absolutely great. Uh,
1: as we close, why don't you give out uh, your website address so that people can, uh, can uh, send you lots of emails? <laughs> Certainly. It's
2: www.paulvaneden.com. So it's P-A-U-L-V-A-N-E-E-D-E-N.com.
1: Paul Van Eden, thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Dominic.
0: You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio, with Dominic Frisby.
1: Sabina Silver's Hackett River deposit is one of the largest undeveloped silver and zinc deposits of its kind in the world. And with me now is Sabina's president, Abraham Drost. Abraham, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. As we start, why don't you tell us? Why don't you give us an overview of Sabina?
3: Well, thanks, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Sabina Silver is a Canadian junior exploration and development company. We're listed on the TSX Venture, as you mentioned, and we also have a listing in Frankfurt on the Deutsche Börse. We're also over the counter in the U.S. SBBFF. Sabina's projects are pure Canadian and uh, they range from gold projects in Red Lake to silver and gold projects in British Columbia, which are both I would describe as grassroots in nature, but as you mentioned, the underpinning value of the company is a development asset in Canada's Nunavut Territory, the Arctic of Canada, called the Hackett River Project. Now, Hackett River is a very large zinc-silver project with actually three deposits which make up the project, and the project has a 43-101-compliant mineral resource containing roughly 205 million ounces of silver and 4.3 billion pounds of zinc plus ancillary copper, lead, and gold, which as it turns out are very important with respect to uh, their containment of particularly precious metals in the concentrate form. Uh, Subsequent to the mineral resource estimate which was released in November of 2006, we had an engineered discounted cash flow analysis done which was reported to the public on March the fifth of this year. On that basis uh, of the cash flow projection, it was determined that the Hackett River project could support a production level of about 12.4 million ounces of silver and 325 million pounds of zinc per year or roughly 147,000 metric tons of zinc plus ancillary copper, lead and gold byproducts. Approximately 80% of the revenue stream from Hackett River would be in the silver and zinc category and that's over a 13.6 year mine life.
1: What's your market cap?
3: Our market cap right now is about uh, 165 million Canadian.
1: And uh, how many shares uh, outstanding?
3: We have 66 million shares out, issued and outstanding and approximately 82 million fully diluted.
1: And your year high and year low?
3: Year high, year low is 84 cents Canadian and 366 Canadian. We're currently trading at uh, 240 Canadian.
1: And who are the major shareholders?
3: The company is. Um, is 60% institutionally held, uh, mutual funds located uh, dominantly in North America, in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, in addition to that, uh, Silver Wheaton, uh, which is a large silver sector company, uh, holds about 12% of Sabina, roughly 20% uh, throughout the, the dealer network in North America and Europe, and management holds about five percent of the company on the issued basis.
1: Warrants and
4: options?
3: Certainly, uh, 1.9 million options uh, granted to well, 1.9 uh, granted at 90 cents. Uh, an additional uh, 2.5 granted at uh, varying between a dollar 25 to 2.35 to management. So 4.3 million options outstanding to management, which is you know, less than, much less than 10% of issued at the moment, 10% being the maximum allowable. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, uh, we have um, uh, broker warrants through previous financings uh, in the money at $1.33 to uh, 3 dollars at the current time. The earliest expiry date on the warrants is in 2008.
1: And how much cash have you got?
3: We have roughly $52 million in cash in the bank at this time, plus uh, liquid investments in uh, a company called Premier Gold, which is roughly worth about $5 million. So working capital cash and investments, about $57 million at this time. So just under a dollar a share. Fully diluted cash, by the way, is $97 million.
1: It's obviously your intention to take Hackett River into production. How much is it going to cost you and how long is it going to take?
3: Well, um, the capital cost for production at Hackett River is estimated by a third-party engineering group called Wardrop Engineering uh, at 525 million Canadian, and the, the time to construction is first quarter of 2011, allowing then for pre-feasibility, bankable feasibility, permits, and construction authorizations uh, between now and that time, each, each step representing about a year.
1: I see. And um, t- tell us about the the pros and cons, if you like, of mining up there in uh, in the sub Arctic.
3: Well, the pros of, of mining in a sub Arctic region are, uh, believe it or not, that the permafrost itself enhances both open pit and underground mining. We have a permafrost profile at Hackett River that reaches down about sixteen hundred feet or five hundred and fifty meters. And that makes for a dry mine down to those depths, uh, which is advantageous. Uh, we do have uh, we're about 70 kilometers from tidewater at the Hackett River location, which will allow for uh, transportation of concentrates onto that tidewater access and then delivery anywhere in the world to smelters anywhere in the world. Um, you know, and strictly speaking, the uh, that area that Hackett River is located in contains a number of other. Uh, what I would describe as world-class players, so RTZ, uh, BHP, currently mining diamond deposits in the Arctic, Newmont and um, Miramar, developing the 5 million ounce Hope Bay deposit, Zinifex currently having just taken over the assets of Wolfden Resources, Inc. and in an all-cash deal, developing the Isaac Lake and High Lake uh, deposits. Hackett River really sits right in the middle of uh, what is going to be uh canada's next great mining district
1: let me ask you a question abraham um i mean you had a great run-up from uh november of last year say through until about april um and uh, your stock I, I, it almost tripled in that time and it's pulled back a bit now how i mean 2011 is quite a long way off how are you going to keep investors interested
3: well that's fair enough um no question that we've seen uh, some retracement of uh, the run that you described, but we certainly had tripled in a very short order. Uh, I think what you're seeing in the short term here is some profit-taking, which I would expect, and certainly, but for every sale, there is also a buyer at new levels, so we're, we're gratified by that.
1: Mm-hmm. If, if I may say, it's, it's, the, the retracement's also gone with the general market.
3: Oh, of course, yes. So you're looking at general market conditions, but you're looking at very real uh, profit-taking opportunity here, and certainly that's uh, that's certainly the case with Sabina. Now, having said that, what's going to keep investors interested? I think there is going to be a substantial news flow from Hackett River as we achieve the benchmarks, the value-added benchmarks I described, and furthermore, the company is is well enough funded that it is looking at uh, merger and acquisition type opportunities with respect to uh, possibly advancing the production profile a bit with near-term or current production. I mean, these are all corporate-type uh, opportunities that may be out there as, uh, as we look to the possibility of marrying near-term or current production with the large blue-sky development asset called Hackett River.
1: Excellent. And do you want to give us a quick outline of your uh, other assets, the uh, Red Lake and uh, the Stuart SK?
3: Of course. yeah. Red Lake, of course, speaks for itself. It is the site of the richest underground-grade uh, gold mine in the world today, uh, currently in production. Uh, we, are, we have projects which are on trend, and in the area of this situation, we've been successful. Who owns the red- that, uh,
1: that uh, gold mine?
3: Uh, that, of course, is owned by Goldcorp. Right. And, uh, you know, we've had great exploration success in Red Lake. In fact, we've, we've discovered and sold uh, a deposit to Gold Corp and maintain a royalty on that situation. It's called the Bonanza Deposit. Um, and out in British Columbia, we have exposure in the Eskay uh, Creek Mining District uh, on trend with the Eskay Creek Mine, which produced 15 million ounces of silver and a quarter million ounces of gold in 2004. We believe that uh, there's a very strong geological look-alike and we are getting multi-ounce silver and gold values uh, through our early exploration at SK Creek. So we're quite encouraged and we'll be moving ahead this year with uh, just under a million dollar budget in both these uh, projects.
1: And how much cash flow does that royalty on uh, on Bonanza give you?
3: That particular royalty is a 1% free cash flow royalty, a net smelter return, um, difficult for me to put a dollar value on it at this time. Uh, the project is not currently in production. However, as I said, it is part of a uh, you know a potential development strategy that Goldcorp has for the for its holdings in the Red Lake camp.
1: Excellent. And um, Abraham, just briefly tell us about the management and uh, your track record.
3: Certainly, um, I'm a geoscientist myself with uh, over twenty years' experience in the Canadian mining industry. Ewan Downey, the, the founder and CEO and president of Wolfden Resources, is a director. He is uh, obviously now, um, you know, going to be involved with Zenefex through that takeover. And furthermore, Roy Wilkes just joined our board as a director and co-chairman. Roy Wilkes is a retired, recently retired uh, president of Washington Mining Group, a large engineering, procurement and construction management mining contractor out of Denver, Colorado. Roy has built many mines uh, through his career and now brings that expertise to bear uh, with Sabina.
1: Okay, Abraham, you've got a minute. Tell me why I should buy your company.
3: Well, I think the the quality of the asset base, particularly Hackett River, uh, is a compelling reason to take a closer look the fact that Sabina or that uh, Silver Wheaton jumped into Sabina for 12% of the company is another reason to take a closer look. Cash in the bank at just under a dollar a share uh, suggests that uh, the company has some depth to it and the quality of management, certainly with uh, the addition of Roy Wilkes, as I mentioned, and others. Uh, all these things can be seen at our website at uh, sabinasilver.com.
1: Excellent. And you've given out your website. Uh, why don't you give us your ticker symbol as well?
3: Certainly, uh, yes. Sabina Trades on the TSX Venture, and the ticker is SBB.V.
1: Sierra Bravo Bravo.
3: Dot Victor, yes.
1: Dot Victor. (laughs) Abraham, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks very much, Dominic, for the opportunity, and good to speak with you.
0: Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com.
1: Aquiline Resources, ticker symbol AQI, who trade on the TSX in Canada, have in their Navidad project one of the biggest undeveloped silver deposits in the world, probably in the top five, and they had a landmark ruling on that Navidad project this week. And talking to me now is Mark Henderson, the president of Aquiline. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Before we talk about this uh, appeal decision, why don't you just give us a quick overview about Aquiline, what you do and uh, where your projects are.
5: Sure. Aquiline is a TSX-listed gold and silver developer. Our primary projects are in Argentina. We have one uh, gold mining project that is at feasibility stage called Calcatroy, and we also now have ownership of the Navidad uh, Silver Deposit, which is one of the best undeveloped silver projects in the world, and we're moving ahead rapidly on both projects. There's about between 50 and 55 million shares outstanding, and the share price today is about $10 a share, I believe.
1: What's your market cap?
5: Uh, market cap is around between 500 and 550 million Canadian.
1: Okay, uh, why don't we talk about this dispute Um What was it about, and how has it been resolved?
5: Um, For those of you that don't uh, know the story, it was sort of not your traditional uh, mining discovery story. Uh, I guess it was with a twist. The Navidad project is probably one of the two best discoveries of this current mining cycle, and certainly of the last decade. The other one, uh, probably that people know, is uh, Rillian Resources, which is a gold discovery in Ecuador, the Navidad never really got the prominence it deserved because before the first drill hole was put into the ground, there was a um, potential title dispute over who owned it um, that was brought forward as a result of our discovery that that we thought there was a breach of confidence in the data uh, that we acquired when we bought a project in Argentina called Calcatroy from Newmont Mining back in uh, late 2002. And as it turned out, you know, our initial suspicions on that were were confirmed and we were unable to get it resolved uh, in a satisfactory manner uh, notwithstanding the parties did have some efforts to try and settle the matter uh, over the number of years and it ended up going to court uh, and there was a six-week trial that happened in late 05 and then we were the winners of that trial and in fact won the entire deposit uh, because the court ruling was essentially to put the two parties back in the position that they would have been in had had this other party not gone and used the data and made the discovery that they did and then the appeal was just, as you mentioned, with the appeal on this uh, decision which took place in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Uh, the verdict of that just came down in the last week, and that was unanimously upheld 3-0 to zero in a in a 45-page ruling that makes interesting reading, and it's got the whole history of what happened there, and that, that uh, decision can be found on our website uh, for any of those that have, have an interest in it. But the, the project itself, notwithstanding the legal... Uh, wrangling that was going on in the background was was being developed the entire time and there's now f- approaching 500 holes on it and it the deposit itself has just kind of gone from from strength
1: to strength so the the dispute was with ema and uh, uh ema are obviously very upset at losing such a potentially enormous uh, project so they're they're bound to fight it um tooth and nail is this the last appeal or is there another appeal court that they can take it to
5: we think it's by and large, it's over, and I gotta say, I mean we you know we're not you know we gotta say for the sake of their shareholders, it was a difficult situation for their for their shareholders, and I can understand how they're pretty upset. they gotta appreciate though that there were lots of opportunities for for this thing not to have gone the way it went. We were quite surprised in fact that it given the magnitude of the evidence that I think obviously the court saw the same thing we did. That it this went down this road, you know, and the, and the and the dispute did not get settled. So it's you know it's quite a shocker for the shareholders on the other side. But
1: did you offer them a joint venture at one stage?
5: There was never any joint. There was never any joint venture. But I think there was a certainly a, the, the you know there were opportunities for settlement before the first hole was drilled because this project certainly looked very very interesting from the surface uh, work that was done. I mean, it was a surface geochemical discovery which was essentially the data that they got that they shouldn't have got. That led them to ground truth, the, the project, and then they, they got very good surface results. And then the, there was coincident geophysics that, of course, looked fantastic as well. But, you know, if you're in this business, we've had lots of projects, and I'm sure people that have invested in various companies, there's lots of projects that have, have gone from that stage of development and sort of gone splat when the when the drill hits the property. You know, they, they call it the truth machine for a reason, and a lot of times, you know, results aren't what you expect. And this is the sort of case where it went entirely the opposite direction. And, and, uh, you know, it's just gone from, from one discovery to another. And the thing just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And they really haven't looked at that much of the real estate that, that, that was under, uh, held under tenure there. So it's, it's a four years and you're at, you know, it's been four years of drilling or, or really f- first drill hole was 2003. So not even four years of drilling Four on the fifth round of drilling. Um, You know, and it's already, as you mentioned earlier on, it's already in the top five, and it's got the potential, I think, to be, you know, potentially, certainly the top two or three before it's done. So it's very, you know, very, very interesting. In terms of the appeal itself, they have one uh, legal avenue left, which is to do what's called seeking leave to appeal to the Canadian Supreme Court. That's a process which very few companies make it, to make it through because it's, uh, the, the bar for that is very, very high. The Supreme Court in Canada usually only takes cases that are kind of of national importance or are on unsettled issues of law. The, the law on this breach of confidence, which was mentioned in the original decision and then with with more forcefully in the appeal court decision, is the Lac Corona case, which dates back about 20 years. That's kind of the law in the world now on breach of confidence. It's kind of the leading case, and the circumstances here are actually quite similar. So the chance that they would get a hearing in front of that court again on something that's a settled law matter we don't think is very very high. So it would probably have to be another issue that they would raise if they really had any chance of going to the Supreme Court. We really don't think they have any chance to get there, and we certainly think that if they got there somehow that they have any chance of winning. So we're pretty confident now that this thing is nearing the end of the legal
1: phase. I mean, from their point of view, they're probably, part of them wants to carry on fighting it, and part of them is p- probably saying it's time to move on.
5: Well, it's hard to know. We can't speak for them. They'll have to make their own decision. I mean, I, psychologically, I, you know, as I said, I can understand it's a difficult position to be in to have, have sort of had that in your grasp and lost it.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the resource. Let's, let's uh, focus on the positive. How big is it, and how long is it going to take you to get it into production?
5: Well, we we don't know how big it's ultimately going to be. That's really, we're now aggressively moving. And I think one of the things that happened as this legal thing uh, carried on into you know year two and year three is that the pace of the work didn't go as quickly as it would have otherwise done for a project of the, this of this magnitude and, and that merited the amount of work that it should be getting um, because the drill results ceased to have any impact. You know, the drill results weren't moving the needle on their share price, so I think at some point they just, decided it made more sense. Let's just do some infill, go, go a little bit slower. So we're now trying to pick up the pace. The last resource calculation was done about 15 months ago when there were 250 holes drilled. Uh, and there's now, as I said, approaching, be approaching 500 here as we get to the end of the summer. And that number was 305 million ounces of uh, indicated silver uh, in about 100 million tons at just north, I think of 100 grams of silver, but there's also there's a huge lead credit, and it's really a, a, there's probably a 40% of the metal value is lead. It's also one of the world's largest undeveloped lead deposits, and there's approximately 2.9 billion pounds of lead in the deposit as well. And we've been drilling now since last November uh, with very good results. Particularly in the last month or so, we've found a new uh, zone called Barite Hill which is just to the south uh, uh, of the main uh, deposit, which was on a bridge. This is actually in a deposit down in the valley below. and buried. It's probably down about 100 meters. And it's returned very, very good results of high-grade silver with little or no lead in it. So we're just on the verge of hopefully opening the whole thing back up again And then in terms of what the ultimate resource will be. Who knows? But it looks very, very encouraging.
1: Excellent. And... Um this There was a ruling in Argentina about six weeks ago to do with uh, the use of cyanide. Is that going to affect you at all?
5: Well, we've got issues with where this deposit is anyway, Dominic, uh, in Chubut province. This, for those that don't know, Chubut province is the pro- province where the um, Meridian Escal issue happened. Um we think that's an issue that primarily relates to uh, Scale's particular location, and you know, you know near a resort town in the Andes. We don't think we have those issues. And our conversations directly with the government tells us that the government very much wants the project developed, but they are going to have to be very careful about how the whole thing is moved forward in terms of pl- preparing the political backdrops so of the project can move ahead because it's a very large-scale project. I mean, this project is important not only to the province of Sherwood; it's it's of sufficient size that it's Clearly, got the attention of the national government. Um, so, they're right at the moment. There is, as a result of what happened at Escal, there is a ban actually both on open pit mining and on the use of cyanide. The cyanide thing is really secondary in terms of, of, uh, of Navidad. Uh, it's really the open pit mining that would cause any issues. But our understanding is that the government's in the process of trying to work their way through to, to uh, really ring fence, if you will the problem that happened at Escalon and ideally opened the rest of the province back up to a more normalized uh, development process regarding the potential for open pit mines. One of the one of the more important assets in Shibut is actually a uranium mine that's owned by the federal government itself and it would be an open pit mine so their attention is on this issue right now in terms of trying to get um, some of these uh, laws and what have you uh, either overturned or Really brought into more balance. The nature of the law itself in Shibut, um really addresses that. The actual the actual uh, text of the law itself says that every project really is approached, notwithstanding the bans. Every project is is really uh, to be looked at on a case by case basis. So, you know, we're quite confident Navidad's going to get developed. But there is there's an awful lot of noise going on in Argentina with the different provinces. And it's all happening at the at the provincial level. The federal government. Is is very very pro mining and pro development, and if you actually look at what's happening in Argentina overall as a country, notwithstanding you do hear some noise about anti mining, um, no cyanide, etc. There are you know there are a number of projects right now being developed there. I mean Silver Standards Building are going to be building a silver mine. Pan American Silver is building a silver mine. Manera Andes is nearing completion on their Huevos Verdes project and the Guacamayo project. Um, that was sold by Viceroy uh, a little while back. That pro- that project, I believe, will be going to development very, very shortly. So, there, you know, there's a, in terms of what they're doing as opposed to what they're saying, there's an awful lot of mine development going on in Argentina.
1: I see. And if you can't open pit this, what will you do? Well, the interesting
5: thing is the new Barite Hill zone that we found, uh, which has got very nice high-grade silver in it, is actually uh, probably going to have to be accessed by a ramp or... Uh, method of development anyway which is an underground deposit wouldn't be affected at all by the ban. so we we know we, we have options there's nothing to say we couldn't mine most of it most of you could that you couldn't mine most in Navidad by underground methods you,
1: you've you also got projects uh the flamingo project the river valley project and the Lans- santa lucia project
5: well so, uh, we do the, some of these other projects santa lucia projects no longer in the company we've really the, 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 we really the core of it is this is we think we own really a district now in in argentina you know it is a very substantial land area you know and it encompasses a pretty nice gold mine on the north end potentially and the Navidad silver project on the south end
1: and what's the infrastructure like there in terms of you know are there roads and water power
5: it's it's re- it is a remote site which is good which is good and bad um the, the good thing is in terms of where it is as far as the South American project, we don't have any topographical or altitude issues. The project where, where we are is really at about twelve to 1,300-meter elevation, um, and there's relatively little relief in that. So in terms of infrastructure to get equipment in and out and people in and out and all those sorts of things, very, very good. But it's a remote site. It may be developed as a fly-in, fly-out type of scenario. The Calcetroy thing is a little bit better. Um because it's actually reasonably near a town called uh, Yakubachi which is about 80 kilometers away. So that's quite possible that 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 that, that town will build up when that mine gets developed.
1: And um, in terms of, I mean, how are you going to get the ore to the places where it gets shipped?
5: Oh, I think it's, pr- it's probably premature to talk about all that. In the case of Cal, in the case of, Calca- the case of there's you know, you're making gold bars, so you're you know, you're what you're shipping out of there is relatively small. That's one of the great benefits of gold mining and why why it's doable for a smaller company to, to be engaged in that business. Whereas when you're looking at a thing like a Navidad, we're probably a really a year away from having an idea what kind of a process option you'll be looking at and whether you'll even be making uh, concentrate. You may want to make metal on site. We just don't know the answers to those questions. There's okay. an awful lot of work that has to get done on the mining engineering side before you're going to know that those sort of answers on, on that. But it's it, the scale of the two projects is, are vastly different.
1: I see, and I mean, I, I was uh, thinking of all that lead, which is why I asked the question.
5: Oh yeah, no, no, clearly. I mean, you're going to have a, you know, there's a huge amount of sensitivity going to going to develop around that. We have to, and obviously, you've got to you've got to do an awful lot of work and an awful lot of studies to get that right. Because it's only going to work if you've done it to the world best practices and you've and you've dealt with all those issues that are naturally going to arise. So we we you got to remember we don't, we only got our hands on this project in November. It's primarily been an exploration focused to date. We've just hired a COO in the last two three months um, who came out of an engineering company. He was president of, of Senko Americas, and now his mandate is to really get Navidad. Uh, on the the track towards feasibility etc
1: and how much cash have you got
5: Uh, at the moment we have about 13-14 million dollars and there's another 9 million dollars approximately that comes in between now and October on deep in the money options and warrants
1: Mm -hmm. are you going to do any more fundraisings
5: well, I'm sure there'll be a fundraising at some point in the future of this company. Develop, we're still a development stage company, so at some point, I, I don't think I don't think it's an
1: But I mean, you're going to have to ra- if you put this in, thing into production yourselves, you're going to have to raise some money, aren't you?
5: Oh yeah, no question, no question. We have an awful lot of um, a lot a lot of interest in that question at the moment because an awful lot of people would like to would like to be owners. I think a lot of people just, that that would have liked to own the deposit, you know, missed the story because they really didn't want to get involved until there was certainty about ownership mm-hmm. and so i think people that re- recognize this is a good situation that is still relatively early even uh in how big this deposit might get you know would like to would like to own something of this caliber i mean if you want to own the good deposits certainly now it has one of the things you want to own
1: um let's just uh quickly um focus on uh, who your main personnel are
5: well, we have an excellent group of people involved here and particularly the people that are on the ground down there in argentina we got a fantastic uh Geologist who actually lives in Chile, quite close to where the project is, named John Chulik, and he is ex, an ex Meridian geologist that was involved in the discovery of Cubata Blanca in Chile, which is a very good gold mine. So we're fortunate to have him involved in running the Navidad project now, and we're actually beefing up the uh, technical team underneath him. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we have this fellow, Gary Gander, who came out of Asenco Americas. Uh, he's a mining engineer and is really uh, taking charge of the development side of things down there and Martin Walter my colleague here in Toronto who's been with us all along and was kind of instrumental in the whole acquisition of uh, Calcatreo in the first instance so we got we have a very good team of people uh, and we have some very good people in Argentina uh, really running Argentina Jorge Valvano who came out of uh, Anglo Gold and Cerro Vanguardia which is one of the few big mines in Argentina uh, and a number of others so you know, we think we have the capability to move this forward
1: Excellent. Well, so you've got a huge resource. You've had a number of logistical problems and uh, it looks like the uh, worst of them are over and uh, things the, the project's gradually starting to, to 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 find its feet and there's a good team there. So it's the future's looking very rosy for you.
3: Yeah, it's been an interesting experience.
5: It's not the traditional road to where how you would end up in this spot, but I mean, uh, we've played our cards reasonably well, and we're, reason- and, you know, of course, we've the, the gods have been with us on the exploration front, and it's exciting to be in a project w- like this because uh, you know the tenor of the the tenor of the results we're getting back are certainly the kind of things that you it's kind of a once in a lifetime thing. I think if you're in this business to be involved in a thing like Navidad that really does deserve the the sort of world class moniker that I think people are. Are ascribing to it. I,
1: I don't want you producing too much silver too quickly, though, Mark, because uh, I own a lot of physical silver and I'm relying on a supply squeeze. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I got to say, I really—we've got to get more knowledgeable about the silver market because I guess uh, we're going to be in the silver market, and uh, I. I can't say that we're raving bulls, and I just don't know enough about the the sort of industrial supply demand side of it. Uh, we'll, we'll certainly uh, be getting up the learning curve quickly.
1: Oh well, introduce yourself to Ted Butler and David Morgan.
5: Okay, I think we will. I believe we're going to the Silver Summit in uh, in the fall, and I know uh, that's sort of the,
1: the oh excellent. The I'm uh, I'm uh, the I'm hosting that.
5: Very good. We'll look forward to, <laughs> to seeing you there. I think all the silver people congregate at that event.
1: So. It is. If you think gold bugs are nutters, wait till you meet the silver bugs. It's
5: certainly reflected in the way the, sh- the share prices of these silver companies trade, so we're we're, we're pleased to be joining the fraternity.
1: <laughs> Listen, uh, um, Mark, uh, quickly before we close, just give us a quick update update on Laramide, what's going on there.
2: Uh, Laramide is
5: uh, about to start their very large-scale program in Australia, which will be uh, beginning any day and will carry on for the next six to seven months with multiple rigs. And that will include a mix of uh, expiration, both on the JVs we have uh, with a couple of players there and on our own Westmoreland, but also it'll be uh, two-thirds of the budget's probably directed at drilling off Westmoreland so that it's ready to go. We've got a scoping study now in Westmoreland, but I think we'll quite quickly be going to full feasibility there. Everything looks good in Australia. The rules have changed now at a national level. Um, Queensland's still Sort of on the fence a little bit, but we're quite optimistic that uh, that Australia is going full tilt into the uranium space. It's their natural; they should be the natural default leader in the uranium world, given their resource position. And we think that we think that they're moving towards that.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, Mark, it's uh, always a pleasure, never a chore. Uh, why don't we give out? Why don't you give out uh, the uh, website address and your ticker symbol once again?
5: Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Thanks. Thanks again, Dominic, for having me on, and uh, hope the uh, listeners will enjoy it. Um, the website address is www.aquiline.com
1: and the ticker symbol is AQI. Excellent. And uh, you trade on the TSX. On the TSX. Mark Henderson, thank you very much.
0: Commodity Watch Radio at MindSight.com.
1: I'm in the pub, or rather, I'm on a terrace in front of the pub, and I'm sitting with Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, who is newly returned to London from Hong Kong. Welcome back, Michael. The gold slingshot, is it in place?
4: Yes, um, it could be. Um, we're going to have to watch the action the next week because it's going to tell us a lot. Um, it's it, The market so far has set itself up perfectly for a gold slingshot move. What what we need now is we need a good couple of days of solid volume and solid price move to get through the overhead resistance. And if we see that, I think you'll see the move continue and probably at a very sharp upward rate. Um, And uh, this, this could be exactly what I've been talking about, the slingshot move. Now, there are no guarantees in this because slightly below where we are now at about 635 to 640, there's important support and if that gets taken out that's going to invalidate and delay the slingshot move and may lead to a sharper drop in the gold price so we're rather poised in an interesting position here ready for a move and um, and uh, it could be a sharp one but we're, we're keeping one eye on the exit
1: always very wise now the um... I noticed uh, looking back at a, a chart from 2005 um, gold found a bottom in May, and then it went up, and then it kind of retested the lows in June. Um, And I say say June, I'm not looking at a chart at the moment, so I say that from memory. It might have been in July. But we might be seeing a repeat of that pattern now.
4: Yes, well, um, I will put some charts on uh, GEI, and uh, I'm going to actually look at them right now as we're talking. And I'll just point out that... uh, Two of the charts that I find particularly interesting, they do so show a pattern such as you've described. They show a low, a uh, rally, and then a retest of the low, which we saw last week. And what that retest has brought is it's brought in, into place some interesting patterns. I like to look at cross-market moves. So I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at a ratio between HUI, which is the gold bugs to index, and the gold price and what this tends to do is it tends to lead the gold price and that happens because gold shares often will move ahead of gold and that chart you'll see there has has touched several times now it's touched the level of 0.48 and that's 48 percent the HUI in other words is 48 percent of the gold price and it's well supported there and it's bounced off that level uh, a few weeks ago as you mentioned and now come back And as gold has formed a bottom last week, this is held at a higher level. And that's why I say the gold slingshot looks poised to move higher, because it looks to me like this has done exactly the sort of movement you would see before, a nice sharp upward move in the gold price. So that chart will be on there. Another chart you'll find is the the gold price in euros, which is um, also showing us an interesting pattern. Um, I'm just going to get a look at it here while we're talking, and essentially, it forms a very nice flag pattern with a nice upward, uh, upwardly sloping trend line, uh, which has shown recently bottoms at 4.8 euros per ounce, 4.47, um, around 4.60, and a recent, recent, recent one again on the trend line here. Just around, just above 480, 480 euros per ounce, and if that trend line holds, um, then we should have a test push up. And here we want to see uh, gold break above 500 euros per ounce, and that would be a sign that we're probably going to go a lot higher, and we may embark on a multi-week and multi-month uh, move upwards. And uh, I think we'll see that all that move moving happening. Uh, as we move in the second half of the year.
1: Well, I do hope you're right. Now, the problem is, the problem I have, is that a lot of um, so-called intelligent, contrarian-thinking investors from Jim Poplava to Anthony Bolton uh, are predicting some sort of market correction. In fact, the front cover of this week's Money Money Week reads, prepare for a market crash. Now, I know that traditionally gold does the opposite to what the markets do, but in the last few years, it hasn't been. It's been tracing out a similar pattern. If we get an overall market correction, surely that's going to take gold down with uh, us.
4: Well, are we talking about gold or gold shares? Either. All right. Well, I, I think that uh, if you look over enough history, um, long enough period, not just the last two years, you're going to find gold traditionally has a negative correlation with, uh, with shares and the reason for that is is that gold benefits from troubles in the market tends to benefit from higher inflation it tends to benefit from uh, from movements uh, away from equities Um, and in fact i think we could see that we could see a situation where we get an equity crash with the markets stock markets responding to higher interest rates and gold perhaps benefiting from what's pushing those rates higher. Which, which is uh, a flight away, uh, away, you know, uh, towards things which benefit from higher inflation. We've got to remember that what's what's really behind all this right now is China. As I said in the last interview, I think China is now running the casino. That's the big change we've seen in the last few weeks. And what China is doing is China has announced actually, and it's been picked up in data this week. Not only are they, have they stopped buying U.S. bonds, they've stopped turning up at the auction, but um, they have also started selling bonds, and that is an important move. And I believe I've read somewhere, I read somewhere—I picked this up—that they're planning to invest 200. I'm no, sorry, got the figure right: 70 billion dollars in gold. Now, the gold market is not that huge, so a 70 billion dollar move by the Chinese into gold is going to have a pretty dramatic impact on, on the price of gold.
1: I mean, I know you have you have great respect for the intelligence of the Chinese authorities. I mean, one of the horrendous things about our sale of the gold was not only that we sold it at such a low price, but that we told everyone we were going to sell it first. So we enabled the market to go down that bit further before we sold it. Um, surely the Chinese, if they were buying, wouldn't tell everyone they were going to buy before they bought.
4: Well. Yes, and, 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 you know, I was quite surprised that uh, actually one of our posters uh, on, on GEI picked this up, a story where, where it was mentioned that the Chinese were planning to buy gold. I didn't see it widely reported, and it's not being widely talked about. In fact, I think it's quite interesting right now what's going on. Is I've been watching a lot of Bloomberg uh, the last week or so as I've been moving house. I've had the TV on when I'm packing and unpacking. And I noticed that the the parties interviewed by that particular news source um, were not talking very much about the Chinese at all. They were talking about inflationary expectations. They were talking about U.S. growth. I think they've been missing the point. I think this has everything to do with the Chinese. And those other factors matter, but they matter to the Chinese. And they're the ones who who have the upper hand now and are controlling the long end of the market right now, the long end of the yield curve.
1: Do you think uh, the uh, Swiss central bankers and the Spanish central bankers are getting a lot of phone calls from China at the moment?
4: Uh, well, that's an interesting question. How are they buying their gold? I mean, um, I'll move on and repeat this sort of theory I've been playing around with. I call it the China Trigger 2, number two, because I'm going to write an article that title pretty soon uh, when I pull all my facts together. But basically, I think we've got a situation where the Chinese... To protect the holdings of their uh, foreign currency uh, assets, are are likely to be playing a little game here, where they're 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 first of all stepping aside from the bond market, allowing bond rates to go up, but not selling their dollars, holding onto their dollars so far, and uh, as those bond yields go up, it has the the likely uh, impact of creating exactly the market crash you were talking about. and If equity prices come down enough, it's going to provide the Chinese with an ideal buying opportunity to buy equities when the prices are low. And then once they've done that, once they've shifted some of those assets into into equities maybe, and here we're talking probably resource equities, energy equities, and gold equities, uh, perhaps then, when they've shifted enough of those, then they'll start uh, selling their dollars, and you'll see a big move upwards in those stocks when they've immunized themselves. Very clever move. Perhaps the, um,
1: the next generation of bond vigilantes are fluent in both Mandarin and Cantonese.
4: Oh, yes. Well, bond vigilantes, uh, who have not been on the scene for a long time, are, uh, are likely to pay a, play a big part in this. Um, I, I'm actually writing another article now and doing a little research for it, And uh, it might have a title, something like the, The Great Lie or The Big Lie. And it's really talking about how the bond investors have been believing CPI, especially core CPI, as being a key thing to watch in deciding whether to buy bonds or not. And I think those days are almost over. Why? Because the guy who's been critical in keeping that lie alive is the Chinese, and he's not playing anymore.
1: Well, I certainly think to the man on the street here in the U.K., just you know from talking to people i think the inflation line is coming out of the uh, is coming out of the bag uh,
4: well you know eventually uh, and it's really going to be dead when when the unions start making noises about how they need higher rates of uh, wage increase in order to cover the inflation that they're experiencing right now Well,
1: i mean the, i know the inflation doesn't include houses but Sorry, inflation does include houses. The inflation figures don't include houses. But um, just, you know, the, the cost of everything, particularly in London, whether it's just, you know, basic food or parking tickets or petrol or anything you buy, it's just.
4: Well, uh, I certainly noticed that when I came back and I, I uh, took a, a two stop journey on the tube three yesterday. Quid cost me four quid. Oh. Going from Earl's Court to uh, to South Ken cost oh, me four you, quid.
1: Because uh, you went from one zone to another, didn't
4: you? Well, I I, th- I thought that was the same zone, and I thought that was the basic price of a ticket. And the guy told me the price has increased in the last six months since I was here last. So four pounds. That's for a shocking amount of outrageous. money. The same distance journey in Hong Kong would have cost me about a fifth that much. So you can see there's a big difference in prices here. You have
1: to get yourself an oyster card. Oh, absolutely. Michael, as we close, why don't uh, you give out uh, your website address? And uh, I understand you've started a thread not just uh, discussing this gold slingshot, but uh, looking at some of the major companies that, uh, whose charts look like they're at, they're at turning points.
4: Yeah, I, maybe I'll just mention that quickly before uh, giving the website. Um, that, that since there is some risk that this support won't hold, one way I'm suggesting to play this is to buy call options, and specifically call options on some of the major companies. And I started a thread with, with the charts of those companies and some discussion. There will be some discussion. Um, but I'm talking here about companies like Goldfields, uh, GDX, which is the EDF, ETF for, uh, for the gold shares, equivalent to the HUI, uh, possibly Harmony and Goldcorp, and even Numont, which has been a laggard for some time new months chart is starting to look very interesting here so those are some companies you can look at for possibly buying call options now where can you find this um, the website is global www.globaledgeinvestors.com
1: and are options pretty cheap at the moment
4: um the volatilities are reasonable now because uh the stocks are a little bit out of favor and um, they've been boring recently, and that's that's typically when you get the uh, the low premiums. I've been buying some myself. I bought some last uh, Wednesday or Thursday, on that price dip, the day the uh, market opened lower. I'm going to be adding some more this week. It's funny that you say that a low risk way of playing this, Michael, is buying options. Normally, options are associated with high risk. Well, <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, I I, I must. Uh, tell people that I'm really talking about in-the-money calls, because there's a very high tendency, I mean, uh, something like 75 or 80% of the options that are bought expire uh, worthless. Um, Now, the way to get around that is to buy in-the-money options and pay very close attention to how much extra you're paying for the optionality. In other words, if GDX, for example, is trading around 39, now um, it was trading below 38 when I bought my calls. Um, I was buying 36 calls and 35 calls. So I was paying quite a lot of intrinsic value, that's the part of the real value the options have if you exercise them now, and very little time value for those options. And with the move we've seen in the GDX in the last few days, um, now I have a profit not only on a I can sell the option basis, but my intrinsic value now is worth more than I paid for the option. So um, if this is confusing to some, I'll happily put a more thorough discussion about this on the website. Well, good luck to you.
0: Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisby, for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our Bulletin Board at GlobalEdgeInvestors.com. That's GlobalEdgeInvestors.com.